Welcome to Salamander Babies. It's a Star Trek podcast for that other Star Trek show. I'm Temporal Timekeeper Mario Panaghetti. I'm Chief Philosophy Officer Lou Gold. I'm Quantum Anarchist Jim Gold. Holodeck Programmer Jen Marshall. And today we'll be discussing the Season 5 episode Bliss from Star Trek Voyager. Seven of Nine and Naomi Wildman return from an away mission because I guess they bring children on away missions without their parents. Anything goes in the Delta Quadrant. To find the Voyager crew fixated on a wormhole seemingly leading directly back to Earth. Seven instantly sees through this as an obvious trap, but has difficulty convincing the crew. She soon finds that they are under the influence of a starship-eating life form that manipulates sensor readings and mental capacities to reflect its target's desires. But because Seven and Naomi have no natural attachment to the Alpha Quadrant, they do not appear to be affected by its thrall. With the assistance of an alien Ahab analog, Seven must overcome the creature's whammy and free Voyager from untimely digestion, all while wrestling with her apprehensions about the crew's ultimate mission. How's that? That's good. good. Sweet, thank you. Um, did I flub philosophy officer? Yeah, that was perfect. <laughs> I was like, love the falafel officer. It might just yep. be a running gag of like, <laughs> of, of what way you're going to mispronounce in, in, it. In my bio section, I'll just be like, by the way, these assholes gave me tongue twisters say every episode. <laughs> you can change your title. No, nah, it's funnier this way. Okay. You introduced that whole concept. <laughs> Perfectly the first time, and then you guys were like philosopher, 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 philosopher. You don't want to hang out with assholes. You shouldn't have asked me over. <laughs> so we're going to take a bit of a different approach from last episode, where we just took a chronological view of the episode. I've done that effectively with the synopsis. We all know what happens in it. Hopefully, you've all watched it. If not, watch it now. Pause. Resume. Cool. The first thing I wanted to talk about was Seven and Naomi's lack of Alpha Quadrant attachment as plot device, or probably to put it better, why were Seven and Naomi not influenced by the pitcher plant? Uh, for someone who didn't watch the episode, the pitcher plant is the nickname they give to the giant space monster that eats ships by luring them in. Uh, effectively, the monster preys on people's desires and shows them what they want to see in order to lure them into this trap, and they get eaten. Slowly digested over a thousand years, probably. But... The episode hinges around the fact that Seven and Naomi, one, because they weren't on the ship at the time, and two, because of their unique backgrounds, aren't impacted by the shared mutual desire of the crew to go home. So I guess the question is, why couldn't the alien influence them? Is it just because the crew has to have a, a universal shared objective? So the the interpretation that I got from this is that there was no good reason. <laughs> there was absolutely no reason for for the pitcher plant not to affect Seven and Naomi. It seemed kind of ludicrous that Tom, who uh, I mean had experience with Earth and all that, um, but was totally affected as soon as they got back, was totally sucked in, but. Apparently, Seven and Naomi just have no desires. We're different desires. So, I am open to the possibility that they actually were affected. Um, I'm always wary of episodes of TV shows or instances in movies or any other sort of medium that warps reality. And... And when they open up this possibility of the audience or characters not knowing what's real, it's a pretty dangerous game. And for me, they kind of crossed the, the the writers of the show crossed the line twice because as the viewers, we saw what wasn't true in a way that was realistic. So there's the instance where you see Earth on the view screen 
And then um, there's also the instance at the end of the episode where they've uh, done the first explosion in the alien and then the shaking of the ship stops and you think that everything's fine. And because we are being deceived as a viewer, like the, the other instances of hallucinations that we've seen are the um, weird glowing saturated imagery so we know it's fake but when they start crossing that line it gets a little bit weird and so I have a couple of suggestions for desires that Seven has um, or I, I jokingly have some for Naomi too. Um, yeah go for it. Okay. <laughs> so I would suggest that um, Katai I think his name uh, I'm going to call him Space Ahab anytime we have to address him by any kind of name because he didn't earn the name Katai. They only drop it casually at the end of the episode. Yeah. Oh. Uh, I'm going to I'm gonna keep calling him Crowley's dad. Fair. Okay. Grizzled old alien Ahab. So I would argue that possibly he's Seven's desire in this instance um, because she only actually discovers him when she's looking for some sort of flaw in the wormhole scenario. He's similar to her in that he's... Well, he's similarly the only unaffected person in a group of people. Yeah, he's he's unaffected by the mind control with no explanation. He doesn't actually explain any of his technology or how it happened. She doesn't inquire about it. He has his entire ship full of family and people were also looking for a home. So he's a very similar character to her, and he provides her everything that she wants in terms of a gritty escape to the situation. That's interesting, though. So it's sort of a, a meta desire where she wants someone to believe her that she's being deceived. But why would that benefit the creature to show her something that helps her out, potentially, and ultimately does? They do go into that, though, at the end of the episode, or towards the end of the episode, where Seven believes that they got out of the belly of the beast, but they hadn't really gotten out of the belly of the beast, and that guy was part of it. Yeah, but he was the only thing driving her. Like, he was the one trying to convince her that this is a hallucination. It, that seems like a really weird meta approach on the alien's part. So that presumes that um, the alien is smart and not just producing desired hallucinations. Which is an open question. Yeah. So... One of the, the main issues with this, uh, with I think this entire line of questioning is it was established for the audience that Crowley's dad existed before Voyager was even introduced in the episode. That's true. Uh, yeah. So it was my interpretation that, that he actually does exist and is, you know, in the thing. I don't want to do too much second-guessing of the writers, and in this case, I don't think they second-guessed themselves at all when they really should have. And I want to add on to that. When I was researching this episode on the Wikipedia description at the end of the episode, it actually, whoever wrote that page says something the effect of, Space Ahab returns to the monster, or was he a hallucination of the monster designed to help them out all along as his consciousness? I'm like, where did that come from? Like, Wikipedia writer, where, where did this, where do you get off putting your head cannon on Wikipedia? <laughs> That's where you put a, a bolded citation needed yeah <laughs> bolded That's blink true. text yeah <laughs> objection your honor speculation yeah headcanon is fine there's nothing in the episode that that makes even a suggestion of that if anything the episode suggests that he thinks seven is hallucination yes and you know the audience knowing she's real it becomes a comedic moment where she has to basically convince him so so i i fully acknowledge that there's the scene at the very beginning and the scene at the end that exist independently of voyager and the crew and we observe that i just I, I hate, no, I don't hate, that's the wrong word. I'm very 
wary of episodes where where the audience views things from the perspective of a character who's being deceived and it's not framed as from their perception so it just makes me suddenly like start questioning everything about the episode and this is similar to like the Buffy episode she gets attacked by some monster and it supposedly makes her hallucinate being in a psychiatric ward and not only that but having hallucinated her entire life as a slayer right um, so that episode, I will say... Linked that, below. <laughs> so that, that episode of Buffy um, does end with a quick flashback to right before the end credits. It has Buffy in the psychiatric ward and the doctors are saying, like, okay, she's gone. And that's a harsh ending to that episode. And in this Voyager episode, we don't have that. We don't have the, you know, it was really an illusion all along. I guess maybe I'm just complaining about the choice to present deceptions in a way that looks indistinguishable from reality to the audience. Yeah, the the issue from my my perspective of what you were saying is... This is just poorly done, unreliable narrative stuff. There, there are no clues about what is or is not true. Like, the the image of Earth is totally fine, but the the actual hallucinations that are, as the crew are, are like, unconscious on the ground, are, they have, like, that uh, glossy effect. There are just so many... It, it makes sense to sort of occlude certain things from the audience in some ways, but they didn't do anything consistently, and I was just really unimpressed with it. To the point where you were asking things like the whole thing where we see Earth on the view screen and that kind of breaks the illusion for you. The way I saw the episode and the way that kind of gets back to why Seven and and Naomi were not affected by the, the influence of the creature, the creature needed a unified theme because it had to get enough people rallied behind this act to move a starship. Being able to convince a few people on the ship would be one thing, but if it was give everyone conflicting realities, I think they would butt into each other and they would realize what was going on. So it needed some central theme. Like, they had mentioned... um, Space Ahab being part of like a colonist ship, and so it was 4,000 people who all wanted to find a colony, except him for some reason. It, it needed unifying causes, which makes me think it couldn't influence every starship that comes along, because some starships might be like other kinds of exploration vessels that aren't all trying to get 70,000 light years away. Before Seven was on the ship, it had enough of a consistent narrative it could build that it could show a single vision that several people saw together. And then later on we see when people are unconscious they have individual like hyper-stylized visions of Neelix being an ambassador and Tuvok finding his wife. But that, that was kind of the rationale in my head for the shared vision. That does make sense now that you're explaining it, but they did not explain that in the show. They for sure did not. At all. And they could have at least just like a sentence or two, but obviously like Naomi and Seven couldn't have been they couldn't have succumbed to the vision or else there wouldn't have been an episode it would have just been like that's the end of the show okay bye everyone well maybe it would have been an episode about the doctor then like the only one who actually couldn't be influenced right which yeah i mean they kind of wrote that off or whatever it's like oh the doctor can't be there because he's his holographic whatever is gonna affect the thing or it's like seven can't be there because her borg stuff is gonna attract the borg which is kind of dumb in that sense there's no reason why seven would wouldn't want Seven and Naomi even wouldn't want to get back. I mean, Naomi says like, "Oh, Voyager's my home. Like, why? What? What do I care about Earth?" Basically, but the idea that she would be opposed to going back to Earth is strange. It doesn't make sense. But Seven has no reason not to be interested in going back to Earth. It was just the astronomically small chance that like this wormhole would pop up that conv- that was like 
That's weird. And then the the only other clue that she got before before actively searching the the wormhole was literally Janeway saying, "This is a deception." <laughs> it, it was basically like Seven's cue in the episode to say, "Oh, okay, I'm on the right track." Uh, without that, without that log entry of Janeway saying, "This is an elaborate deception," and I'm I'm pretty sure those were her exact words. There would be no episode. Like they would just get sucked into the the pitcher plant, and like everybody would have been killed. Uh, without without that log entry being there, they would have all been killed. Without Crowley's dad being there, they would have all been killed. There are just so many like writing wise, just hackneyed plot devices that are used to get them to like shoehorn them out of trouble. I, I think they approached the making of this episode from probably the wrong direction. Rather than from the direction of, oh, let's make a story about bending perception of reality and using it as a pitcher plant. Instead of approaching it from that angle, they approach it from the angle of, we want to make an episode about Seven and Naomi. Okay, these are interesting characters. What would draw them together? Oh, maybe they both don't have any particular attachment to Earth. Cool. Well, why would the rest of the crew, why would that come up? Like, oh, let's make everyone hell-bent on going to Earth all of a sudden and then make it be a dilemma. One question that I have, it's a detail that may or may not be important or whatever, with the concept of the shared deception, is that everybody was receiving letters from Earth, and I'm just kind of... I wish that, you know, obviously they're not going to show us what's on the pads, but I wanted to know how that works. Because each person's individual desires manifested in the contents of their letter. And again, it goes to the, I guess, intelligence of the pitcher plant, that it would be able to create unique things and be able to direct not necessarily the content that's individualized, but a mechanism to access each person to let them get some sort of individual desire before they actually fall asleep. Well, one, that's what I want to talk about later in more depth. Two, um, going back to what you were saying earlier about how they could have framed it in a different way, which may have made more sense, they could have done the whole thing about Space Ahab, finding him and then trying to navigate him out of it, but then the whole, at the same time, the whole crew is succumbing to this thing. Seven of Nine feels like she's taking crazy pills because she's the only one going, guys, what's wrong with you? I know that I'm right, instead of going into this thing totally blind and being like, am I right? I don't know. Because the moment that the audience kind of wakes up to this something weird is Janeway's like, oh, the thing that I want just happened. And then Chakotay comes in and he's like, oh, the thing that I want just happened. And then like Seven of Nine like, looks at the camera like she's Jim in the office. <laughs> it's exactly how I remember that episode going down. That totally happened. Yeah. She right? looks right at the camera and goes, what? <laughs> exactly. I think there's a really easy way to make Seven's exception work by just saying something, something Borg implants. <laughs> yeah, that, that would have been like the perfect out for her. It's like, oh, this telepathy is on a certain wavelength that the Borg are immune to. Like, like you know, obviously it'd be bullshit, but... Right, but it's Star Trek bullshit. It's like, it's established bullshit. Like yeah. it's something we can easily accept as an audience, and then it would make more sense that she would find like it push harder, even despite the presence of weird breadcrumbs. Like she would just know in her heart that it's wrong, and then maybe she's questioning her own perception because she doesn't think like everyone else. Mm -hmm. And then finding space Ahab. But yeah, I just think that could have been handled a lot better. Yeah, actually, going back to the idea of sort of shared hallucinations, um, I will defend this episode on that on on that point um just because supposedly the crew are interacting with the organism uh via telepathy but it's interacting with everybody at the same time so like oh harry wants a letter from his canadian girlfriend from the alpha quadrant 
and it knows that, and then it can sort of put that idea in everybody else's minds. Uh, I'll defend it on, on that point. I think that makes enough sense. So basically, the survivors from the thaw really needed this to create a nice hive mind. I really yeah. appreciate that this podcast has its own continuity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can go straight from the thaw to bliss. <laughs> straight line. I wonder what would happen if Michael McKean wound up oh my God. interacting with... Uh, <laughs> What would he want? Everyone to be afraid. But that's not what they want. Oh god, conflicting desires. (laughs) Maybe they would kill each other. (laughs) That's where black holes come from. (laughs) Conflicting desires. Desire singularity. Specifically, like, the computer fear demon and giant space monsters. I believe it. Show me what you got. (laughs) (laughs) Just the sun screaming. (laughs) I like what you got. Of course you do. I put it in your brain. <laughs> I, I guess I, I would side with you, Jim. I believe I can totally buy it telepathically influence them because Star Trek is well established that telepathy can do that. But I actually find it harder to believe all the uh, faulty sensor data stuff. I'm like, how, how does a creature just like put out wormhole signals? And why would that not be a wormhole? On the other hand... Um... <laughs> Presumably, they've already fantasized about these events happening, and they know how it's going to go down in their own minds. They had the thing where Bellana wakes up, and um, the doctor's trying to talk to her, but she's like, see- like literally seeing her fallen comrades, and um, that's when Space Ahab's like, she doesn't want to hear you, she doesn't want to see you, they never want to. Yeah. Yeah. So to the point of how does it fake the readings that, that look like a wormhole. Which Seven can also see when she's not under the influence. She can see the bad readings. So yeah. it's clearly not having a, it's not a mental thing that's creating fake sensor data visually. Right. Um, so part, part of um, that is that um, they talk about how the wormholes only X distance away should have been on their sensors you know, a long time ago. And so it, it's not mimicking accurate representation. It's probably just a certain range of desire and when you get within that. Which is why they yeah. could see um, the life sign readings when they were very far away and then by the time they got too close, it was too late. Yeah. Basically, it seems like this is all just an allegory to the sirens from, I believe, the Odyssey. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, it's just like an island that <laughs> sort of puts out whatever whatever the desires are that are of the crew of the ship that's passing by. In that case, it was just always beautiful women and sex. In this case, it's like, oh, going home, it's finding the colony, it's etc, etc, etc. Going back to the space Ahab slash Moby Dick allegory, metaphor, like they're all following their desires, not for vengeance, but for what they want at the cost of literally anything else, including their own lives, which they kind of should be realizing but they don't realize because they don't want to which is also another theme of the episode and like Janeway is suddenly okay with like subduing Seven of Nine she's okay with all this weird shit that she would never be okay with Chakotay's down with all this stuff too everybody's down with all this stuff that they wouldn't normally be and they should be realizing that it will be causing their destruction shortly but they don't which goes back to the uh, the Moby Dick theme of it which is Definitely on the nose. Um. Yeah, I think besides the one-off illusion they make to Moby Dick, I don't know if they were thinking that hard about the Moby Dick connections. Well, I am here. I appreciate that. that. I appreciate that you (laughs) thought harder about the allegory than they did. I think they were thinking about it, and they lampshaded it with that little bit of dialogue, and like that was just that ruined that ruined the 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 metaphor for me. Yeah, I totally agree. It was like. 
that was like the most ham-fisted way to eat, to like yeah. bring it up. It was just like, oh, okay, yeah, the doctor knows a book. Like, yeah, know, I, like, I, I kind of liked the Moby Dick thing until the doctor literally called it out in, <laughs> yeah. in the script. And not only that, but to an alien that wouldn't understand the reference. <laughs> yeah, I was like, <laughs> good well, job, you, doctor. Does that translate? <laughs> yeah, the Universal Translator just like picked through this guy's brain and like found space Moby Dick. <laughs> yeah. Here, read this book. You have homework now that you're. And killing your demons. The specific sub-desires, like plot B, of all of the characters. Um, so obviously everybody wants to go back to Earth, to the Alpha Quadrant, but also they've got these other like little honeypots in there to like really drive them to it. Janeway's fiancé, ex-fiancé's other fiancé fell through, which is apparently what she's been desiring secretly or whatever while she's flirting <laughs> with Chakotay, but whatever. I mean... <laughs> she just wants custody of that dog. She wants the puppy back, yeah. Well, yeah, everybody does, I mean... I mean, the dog had puppies, right? So even if the dog died, there's probably some puppies she yeah. can get a hold of. I, w- I would hope so. Like, what, uh, Chakotay is a, a professor now. He, like, just totally gets out of the space game altogether. <laughs> Tom Paris gets some cool, fancy job, like, working on his buddy's cars or some shit. It's a, he, he's a test pilot in Australia. Ah, so the, he remembers that. so stupid. <laughs> it was the stupidest, right? Yeah. That is the stupidest job for someone in Starfleet. <laughs> I really want to go back to Earth, to Australia, and right. fly ships. At this point, he had already gone past warp 10. And yeah. like he's like, oh, I want to be a test pilot. Isn't it's Delta like, Quadrant like the best career opportunity for a test pilot? Like he's building new technology all the time on the frontier and, and testing an unknown space. Yeah, the Delta what? Flyer, etc. Yeah, exactly. Is the Delta which, Flyer around yet? But yeah, yeah, which they yeah. start they start out in the Delta Flyer. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Oh, you're right. Because I did not mention in the synopsis that Tom was on the ship because he really didn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, except to indicate that um, Naomi apparently is getting helm instructions for no reason. I get it. I mean, like you know, they got to take turns watching the child who's super into hanging out with them all she's like their their little kid sister that tags along but yeah i would imagine that um what tom paris's dream would be like oh, i get to curate this museum on 1950s nostalgia and car stuff that's yeah. exactly it he'd be like a hollow novel writer or he'd be fixing old cars exactly like i'm mopping up this old drive-in movie theater that i'm gonna invite all the girls to <laughs> I'm just, I'm picturing him being like, I fell through uh, Fisher in Time, and now I'm actually in the 50s. That's his vision. <laughs> yes. Screw the present. That that would that would be a more accurate version of what he would actually I want. I went back and found Sarah Silverman again. <laughs> no, no, he would want, he, he would want to be working on Starfleet's uh, time travel machine, specifically to go back to the 50s. Yeah. And for start some, the space age. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then just get lost there and never find his way back. Like, and just write pulp sci-fi. Yeah, like, oh, wow. <laughs> Oh man! <laughs> and change his name to Gene Roddenberry. Oh, oh my god. god! That would be so awesome. Why didn't they do that? Biggest head kid. Oh my god! Yeah, Harry Kim finds out that he wins some like, or he gets a recording contract for clarinet <laughs> solos, and his girlfriend, who's totally real, like introduces herself to his friends as his girlfriend, and she's totally real, and they're like, and "Oh, she- you weren't lying." And she totally compliments him in front of everybody. Yes. It's like, you are the funniest, most cleverest, most handsomest clarinet player I've ever met. And that would be true. Harry gets a letter from like his old high school bully who's like making amends and wants to be best friends now. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh this isn't weird at all. That's the guy who beat me up three times in Starfleet Academy. <laughs> Tom says that Harry's a really awesome guy. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Tom finally compliments him. I want to be more like you, Harry. <laughs> and that's how they realize it's all a facade. Tom's <laughs> like, I wouldn't say that. Something's wrong with this. But yeah, I mean, like, well, Tuvok, his wife shows up, I guess, and they do their little finger salute. So I have to admit, by this, so I watched the episode twice. By this point, by the point where everybody's actually hallucinating, I was just on my phone. I, I was so fucking bored. <laughs> Uh, like true. this Both episode, hurt. like I didn't even see the the finger salute thing. I was just like, I read it in the notes as we were doing that, and I was like, oh okay, I guess that happened. Yeah. So I'll admit I was drawing a little bit while I was watching the episode, <laughs> um, but I'm looking up at the screen every like 30 seconds or so, and when I saw Tuvok's wife in his hallucination, it made me so happy. I love Tuvok and. Like, you only get to see his wife, like, two or three times in the entire series. And they're, like, I think they're all hallucinations. One's a hologram. Or one's a hologram. They're, they're not real. But, like, I just I love Tuvok. And I want him to be happy. And I know that he has feelings. And just seeing him, like, be affectionate. I was like, you do that. And also, when I was getting ready to play the episode, I saw that this episode comes right after the one where he's stuck on that planet with Tank Girl and has, like, emotional problems. <laughs> And so just seeing him, you know, probably shortly thereafter missing his wife made me so like, I got feels. I, I stopped drawing and I was just like, yeah. And then he did the little finger rub and I was like, you dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that was one of the hallucinations I really appreciated because what I had noted is Tuvok is very good at concealing and suppressing his emotions, but desires aren't necessarily tied into emotions. And so that was interesting that, you know, Seven thought, oh, maybe he would be immune to this because of his logical mind. It's like, but no, he, he's a living being that has desires and wants and, and overarching goals. And the creature was still able to exploit that. And without him, you know, without doing what they normally do with Vulcans, which is make them super emotional because, oh, their inhibitions are gone. It's like, no, it exploited him without uh, compromising his uh, logic. So, um, related to that, in the pilot, I believe it is, there, Jane was talking about having spoken to Tuvok's wife, and she says, uh, you know, your wife's worried about you. And Tuvok says something like, you know, Vulcans don't worry, that's an emotion. And then Janeway's like, well, she misses you. And Tuvok's like, I miss her too. And I was just like, yeah. oh. So, yeah, th this longing that is you know a desire but not necessarily like i just uh, the, that moment was my favorite moment of the episode second favorite moment of the episode it's sort of an acknowledgement of their connection and their like need to have one another rather than like an emotional want per se I don't know. It's interesting that, like, well, we see what Janeway's romantic attachment, Tuvok's romantic attachment, we didn't even get, like, a mention of Neelix and Kess. <laughs> 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 it's just like, huh, interesting. Well, we didn't really see much of Neelix, except for, for whatever reason, he wants to go to Earth. He wants is... to be an ambassador, I think, was, was his deep desire. I guess. Starkly gave me an ambassador role for race of quadrupeds. It's like, like, cool. What? You get to be the unicorn on, in the Alpha Quadrant, I guess. So, the quad head thing i guess i'm just like you are a kinky guy like <laughs> first a two-year-old like that's yeah. <laughs> two-year-old tug my whiskers and then like i don't know whatever he picks them why did people go to sex with this so quickly like i didn't i didn't get that at all 
I just think Neelix is kind of creepy. Well, yeah, yeah but like it's he's, fair assumption. I don't know. His want was just totally nonsensical. Like and not tied to the Alpha Quadrant. Like yeah. Like if we're gonna talk about having a shared goal, I don't see how his goal of leaving the Kazon area has anything to do with him wanting to go to the Alpha Quadrant. Like he has no particular ties there at mm-hmm. all. Which. I think is a point against the idea that Seven and Naomi's disconnection with Earth was a reason that they were somehow immune or, or like more resistant to it. It's like Neelix is in that same boat, and he just bought in. I think he just buys into everything. That's fair. I think, I think he's, he's just super like susceptible weak. to this. <laughs> he's weak-minded. Yeah. yeah, susceptible to the Force. So um, I would say that I wouldn't be surprised if. And, and maybe this just is, you know, him being susceptible, but he wants to stay with his, you know, Voyager family because his entire, well, not his entire species, but most of his species has been killed. So he's kind of adrift and he's probably just wants to stay with the crew. Really quick throwback to the whole Seven and Naomi have no reason to not want to go to Earth. I would say that Naomi probably doesn't want the ship to get split up, which is, would happen. It's know. a family unit for yeah. him. Um, and then I would say that um, potentially Seven might not want to go back to Earth just because Borg aren't popular there. Her species has committed genocide many times. Yeah, so... It's not part of the Federation. <laughs> you say potato, I say... Genocide. So that's yeah. kind of like opposite desire discussion, but I just wanted to throw that in because I remembered. Yeah. That's that's fair. I mean, they, they definitely don't have like distinct reasons to go to the Alpha Quadrant. But they don't love the Delta Quadrant. Right. Like, But they're still along for the ride. Like, Naomi isn't sabotaging the ship <laughs> and Seven didn't just didn't just like say, fuck, me off over here. <laughs> I heard that. I, I mean, she I does can. in a previous episode, doesn't she? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would say with Naomi and Seven, um, you could argue that they both fear the unknown and that going to Earth would be the unknown for them. Like, Seven already feels other, even in a ship full of people who respect her. I mean, that's another topic for this episode. As a person and a crew member. And then Naomi is still a child, and she says specifically, like, I wouldn't get to hang out with you anymore, Seven. And I love you so much. And when I get a little older, we should talk about this some more. Well, and I think it's important to note that both Seven and Naomi, like, Naomi, you talk about, Lou, you mentioned Naomi, um being tied to Voyager as a family unit. Seven is tied to Voyager as her collective. Think of, like, psychologically what's happened to her after leaving the board collective and suddenly being an individual mind again. I'm sure she's latched onto this crew as her peers, and, and it is a big unknown if she goes back to the Alpha Quadrant, like, would she be put on trial? Or more realistically, like, would she kind of be pardoned and then be separated from the ship because she's not Starfleet? I, I totally agree with you, Jen. Like, the, the, with you guys, like, the unknown is, is probably the big thing that's keeping her from just being gung-ho Alpha Quadrant. I understand that, but at the same time, the pitcher plant creature tailored everybody's uh, experience to what their actual desires were and like the idea that it just wouldn't have come up with anything for for naomi like i think it did just because they were separated when the initial influence was happening like they basically they were added later and didn't fit the narrative that's the best i got like I, yeah. it's, it's it's weak yeah i i could see that um i have joke suggestions please for... it's joke time um, so Welcome to joke time. <laughs> it's, it's the joke joke <laughs> segment of the podcast. The regular segment of the podcast where Lou drops some zingers. All right, Lou, zinger number one, go. Uh-oh, no pressure. <laughs> I would suggest that uh, Naomi's desire was to be carried around by 1990s Robert Duncan McNeil, because that sounds perfectly reasonable to me. She seemed into it. Yeah. 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 Also, Seven, 
I feel like she had a little bit of desire when she unloaded on the entire engineering department. <laughs> <laughs> like, Was she Pavilia Fantasy in it there? Went, it went slow-mo. She said, I'm sorry, but she really Zach's, sorry. Guest, mean, guest directed by Zack Snyder. She, where she's just like mowing people down. <laughs> starting with Bolana. It's like, oh yeah, sure. She's firing on stun. But she's a big old phaser rifle. Like she's, she's totally having a good first. time. <laughs> she was like, I'm sorry for doing this. Uh-huh. So, it's like, I don't know if it's actually on stun. Well, so, um, <laughs> so like I, I mean, I was focusing. I was watching because I was like, well, so she takes the, the phaser rifle out of the container, which I thought was fucking badass. Mm-hmm. Because... It's like, she's planned, she's thought this through. She knows how to take over the ship in about two seconds. Like, she has a phaser rifle at the ready. She goes, she teleports to the engineering, and I'm just, like, sitting there, wide-eyed and gleeful. <laughs> and then she, like, apologizes, and then she fires, and Bolana gets hit, and she's just slow motion, flies backwards, and hits the wall. And I was like... <laughs> This is beautiful. And then it proceeds to shoot like two or three more people, but it's all like drawn out. And the way that it's drawn out, I can't help but think like it's kind of a little bit like the fantasies where they had the slow motion things. It didn't have the lighting, didn't have the, you know, filters and shit, but it just gave me feels like she's been wanting to do the shit for so long. Sorry, continue. I mean, could we argue that that was the pitcher plant getting to seven? Like, I've wanted to do this for forever, and this I mean, is the best. Everyone and was also, unconscious afterward. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I would not. Like, I, I think I, I wouldn't want to go. I like. There's there's enough bad, uh, unreliable narrator in this episode that like I wouldn't want to like presume that, but. Also, that whole sequence made me think of, like, this ship is so easy to take over. She does, like, three things and just, like, reroutes controls for everything to main engineering and, and like, erects level 10 force fields. She has so much authority that, like, oh, everybody is just like, oh, like, we can't do anything. So, um, an example of Seven's authority in this situation is she's accessing Janeway's personal logs and they're restricted. And she <laughs> walks across chip. the room. She walks across the room, opens up a panel from the wall, pulls a little circuit board out, walks back, and it's authorized. And I'm yeah. just like, that's so like it made. That was my number one favorite moment. <laughs> Wait, you liked like, it? That was terrible. It was terrible, <laughs> but I loved it, was, it like, because schlocky. I mean, it I speaks to the, this poor security on the ship. The, yeah. Like the permission yeah. structure is faulted by like one isolinear chip not being there. Yeah. I will say Data has, was much more effective at taking over the Enterprise because he could like imitate voices and things. Yeah. But she did pretty well with Borg encryption and so, stuff. And in, in First Contact, he like speed types like a huge piece of code out. It, For it encryption, really cool. yeah. yeah. So I want to I wanna go on the record here and kind of defend myself because... I know it's a bad episode. <laughs> okay. I know it's a bad episode. I know that like it's bookend like the the weird reality bending deception things are bookend with very firm independent moments that prove that it's not all an illusion all along, even though I kinda got off on an all excited like <laughs> let's look at this thing. Um, so I know it's a bad episode. I know it's not actually like it's a f- broken reality one. So so I'm not looking at this and going like, this is a really thoughtful, well-written, here's a great little piece. I'm looking at, at it and I'm just like, I just like Seven being so like, nah, I already got this. Like <laughs> snapping her fingers kind of, you know, badass. I could take this whole place down in five seconds if I needed to. She could probably do self-destruct without having a countdown. 
She probably writes these contingency plans all the time. Yeah. At its heart, it's totally a seven episode. I mean, Naomi's there, but this this episode was for her. And I'm sure she might have even had some um, input in the story or the script because it was like seven as the hero. And I do enjoy her liking like, this is stupid. I'm just going to change this now. And <laughs> like, because nobody else would know that presumably maybe Bolana, but she would have to think about it for a little bit longer i think but i think Bolana could definitely take over the ship i think maybe her and seven should be a power couple and be space pirates of <laughs> <laughs> everybody else i'd ship it yeah. yeah this entire conversation is just predicated on a warship having terrible security <laughs> and this is something that like yeah for the plot like it needs to be the case but it's still really bad I feel kind of conflicted because on the one hand, yes, I agree, clearly the security is terrible. And on the other hand, I really don't want to insult Tuvok. Um, <laughs> no, this was not Tuvok's fault, to be sure. <laughs> he went down to Seven's chambers in a timely manner, and she was already teleported out. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, Tuvok is still bad at his job. Tuvok went right to the scene as soon as he was called for. Uh, yeah. But they he, thought they had but, it under control. But he saw Seven pick up a phaser rifle, he heard her say point-to-point transport to main engineering, and he didn't, like, say, hey! Oh, Chakotay did. That's Chakotay's Well, okay. Chakotay's bad as well. That's fine. They're all bad at their jobs. (laughs) I'm just, like, this this is... It's just really bad. They give the Borg a lot of leeway on that show. So bad. And it comes back to bite them a couple times. I don't care about the security of the U.S. (laughs) Voyager. It doesn't matter to me. At all. Jen has no qualms. Nope. I I, I do. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of people do. You're not alone. Okay. I just don't worry about it. This sort of begs questions about, like, how much leeway we should give the writers. Right. Because, like, they apparently didn't treat most of the shit that they wrote seriously, so why should we? Right. That's what I was going to say. Because if you start worrying about stuff like that, it's going to drive you crazy. Yeah. Because of all the other times that something stupid happens and it shouldn't have happened because this should have been there. But it's like, was it ever there to begin with? Maybe. In one episode. Or maybe it could be in a future episode. You don't know. And it's all dependent on whether the writer says, like, hey, actually, this is pretty useful to the plot. Exactly. So for my own sanity, I don't think about those things. I try and only think about them when I enjoy complaining. When I enjoy complaining <laughs> or when I enjoy trying to uh, hole fill, shoveling shit into it, just sort of figuring out a way of making it work or breaking it entirely, I'm warning about that. So I might get off on another tangent before too long about shit that's really not going to fly. I mean, personally, I I watch the episodes, I take note of all the horrible things, I leave it pent up in my system over years, and then I start a podcast. So That's fair. I think that's a good strategy. I think that's going to be my outlet, so I will for sure complain about plot holes. Okay. <laughs> I'm not saying you shouldn't complain, I'm just saying that it doesn't bother me at all, so I probably won't complain about it. Okay, it, it might bother me on it, like... A certain conceptual level, but I also appreciate that it's a television show meant right. to entertain for an hour, and I can enjoy it on that level, despite weird plot eccentricities. Um, amusingly, I actually have a lot of trouble with that kind of f- I'm gonna let this thing slide, which is why I had trouble with like Doctor Who and then also <laughs> which is Bell a show about letting it slide. So, this is gonna be an interesting podcast series. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I had the same kind of trouble with Doctor Who, but this is all basically just Tom Paris saying the the warship wasn't built for acoustics while sitting on the sectional couch. (laughs) 
That was a warship sexual count. Yeah, yeah. It War- wasn't very comfortable. Yeah, you, you didn't know what the thread count was on that cushion. <laughs> that's fair. It was very utilitarian. Yeah. The guests don't use windows. <laughs> <laughs> Replicated is just not the same texture. I mean, not the right sink and bounce. Mm-hmm. What are they? The sultans of the skies? <laughs> Basically. It's not a memory foam sofa or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, I think probably the only positive thing I have to say about this episode... Uh, was the fact that uh, William Morgan Shepard is in it. <laughs> I, You're in it for the guest stars, it I, sounds like. I totally am. Uh, I love him. He was the... So for all of our poor benighted fool listeners, uh, he he was the uh, warden of the penal colony at Ruripente in um, Star Trek VI. And the reason I called him Crowley's dad earlier is because he is the real life father of the actor who plays Crowley on Supernatural. No, he's not. He is. That's so cool. It's <laughs> so fun. Cool. It's so much cooler than this episode. <laughs> this is great content for our Supernatural podcast. <laughs> that other spinoff. Yeah. Carrie Pod, my wayward cast. Oh, God. <laughs> I can play that on Melodica, too. Awesome. Oh. New theme song. Sorry, old theme song. <laughs> so, William Morgan Shepard. I loved him in Civ 5. Who was Civ 5? He was the narrator. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Every time he was on screen, I know he's like, oh, I'm rugged base Ahab, but every time I was just like, just tell me about this wonder. Tell me about this technology. <laughs> like, I just wanted him to help me get through the Stone Age. That's awesome. Now I want to play some Civ. Yeah. I was mostly annoyed by him um, constantly explaining that the creature shows you exactly what we want to see. I was thinking to myself, don't make this a drinking game. <laughs> <laughs> of every time he explains the pitcher plant uh, motivations. Now I just want to end every podcast with us suggesting drinking games for that episode. That's a good one. <laughs> oh yeah, that is a good one. I like that gimmick. He's showing you exactly what you want to see. I know. <laughs> you told me. You get so fucked up by the end of this episode. <laughs> Every time there's some security breach on Voyager that shouldn't be there, take a shot. Ooh, that's a good one. (laughs) You would die. Yeah. Yeah. So the doctor can just lie to people? (laughs) Like, that's a thing? Like... He, he can just like, oh yeah, I will pull random crew members in for routine examinations and just examine them without their consent or whatever. So, shit, informed consent is a concept in medical yep. stuff. Presumably he I, has some sort of sense of, sense of ethics. Well, like, so is medical purview on, a, on the ship environment. Like, this is a little bit of a tangent, but in Next Gen they established that Dr. Crusher has a specific capability to relieve the captain of duty for medical issues. So, like, they have out-of-rank responsibilities that they can do, and I imagine the doctor would have to be programmed to be able to do those things. What I was going to mention before you brought up the issue of informed consent was they, they mentioned that they do no harm. In some scenarios, you might have to lie in order to prevent a greater harm. And the the show has faced the issue, I forget if the episode is before this one aired or, or after, but where the doctor is faced with the choice of a lesser or greater harm. So he might already be familiar with that as a concept. The other thing that I would say is if a person, and don't quote me on this for f- sake, this is not legal advice or anything, <laughs> but in theory, if a person isn't capable of giving consent, then you don't need to seek it. So if these people are actually being mind-controlled, then I think that he's allowed to deceive them in order to examine the situation. 
but yeah. there's little evidence beyond Seven's word at that point. Exactly. Like, it's just essentially her hunch that he's going on. Um, to be fair, he's part of the computer. He can probably figure out. I mean, he, he's not going to be deceived by false readings. It will always be unclear how much of a part of a computer he is, but as far as from a storytelling perspective, I think they generally establish that holograms on Star Trek that are sentient have independent minds. Like, he's not tied into the ship's sensors, he's not tied into any larger database knowledge. He has to research things like, like a human would, and part of that is because he's reproducing a human very well, but also his simulated mind has no tie into the computer's uh, databanks beyond what's been pre-programmed in him from medical knowledge. Okay, so I'll take that back, but what I will say is that he's capable of investigating completely independent of being deceived by false readings. Yeah, Ahab was right. He'd be a good crew member for his for his voyage. Should have gone. I mean, really, no, I Ahab should regroup and make a whole crew of virtual assistants. Like, just have Siri and Cortana, like, helping him out. <laughs> That'd be cool. That'd be super cool, because they would, they would be immune to the thrall of the beast. Yeah, whoever's on Amazon. Is it Echo? Alexa. Alexa. We are triggering so many home virtual assistants right now. <laughs> Alexa, turn on the garbage disposal. <laughs> okay, Google. Hey Siri, loop episodes of Voyager. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that that backfired. <laughs> I was gonna say I think there there's already context or a prerequisite. I'm probably using Precedent. both of those words. Yeah. Um, for the doctor taking over for the captain, I can't cite a specific episode, but it's happened. He doesn't lie to anybody, but if the captain's out of her mind for whatever reason or unable to serve as captain, he can take over. I will say, I, I approach this concern from a slightly different angle. The angle being the doctor has weird contingency plans for subtly like checking the crew's vitals for reasons. But I would question, I don't know if a doctor as a role is required to always tell the truth, and I don't know if a hologram would always be required to tell the truth. So I don't think there's really a concern of him being able to lie yeah, necessarily. It, it, it sort of begs questions about like rights and responsibilities responsibilities within Starfleet and we don't have access to that body of law. It's so. yeah, it's safe to say that in their sort of pseudo militaristic structure, they do waive certain personal responsibilities and rights for the sake of the safety of the crew and, and the ship. Yeah, and I'll give that to them, but just on on Seven's hunch. Exactly. It seems, <laughs> it seems like a stretch. It's like he just does like someone's like, "Oh man, my third routine examination this week." Well, doctor's <laughs> orders. <laughs> So something that I, I wanted to talk about from this episode, and it's not fully developed, so sorry if I kind of ramble per usual, but I was intrigued because initially I was looking at this episode as a cautionary tale against shortcuts, which is a recurring theme in Voyager. From the slipstream drive to the caretaker, they tend to have some sort of moral reason or technological reason why they don't take shortcuts, because, I mean, otherwise the show would end. In any case, getting to the vendettas. So the concept of the negative aspect of shortcuts is sort of juxtaposed with this guy who's on a vendetta, um, who's dedicated almost 40 years to trying to kill this space creature. And it got me thinking about the theme of vendettas in Star Trek. And you have Seska has a slight vendetta against Voyager. She leaves that program to kill Tuvok, I suppose, that was designed for. There are a lot of big conflicts, whatever. Um, Picard has his vendetta against the Borg, and it got me kind of thinking about what is the source of this theme in a post-scarcity society. 
and maybe this is a misperception of this reality, but it's supposed to be some better future humanity and their past capital punishment. And yet a pretty regular theme is a character who's obsessive and aggressive towards one or more people in this vendetta fashion. And yeah, I kind of want to talk about that a little bit. Well, Picard specifically, obviously we're not talking about the Enterprise, but him being a very like middle of the road, very reasonable character, that he's so like fucked up, for lack of a better word, by the Borg. It's kind of like, oh, that was a really big deal. This was very traumatic in his life. Obviously we're gonna take that very seriously. There isn't really a running vendetta in Voyager that I can think of at the moment right now, because even Picard had that thing going with the Q and like the Voyager version of Q is just kind of like, why? Why are we doing this right now? <laughs> but that a character needs to want something in order to drive that character and that for dramatic purposes, sometimes that want needs to be a little bit self-destructive or negative. I mean, that's just coming from a a narrative point of view, not specifically a contextual Star Trek point of view, but it does serve to make it a little bit interesting and add some punch to certain things where otherwise it would just be like, look at all these noble heroes doing what they do. So I, I'd like to, to just note that um, I'm actually a fan of Vendettas as a writing tool. I think that it has a lot of good uses in terms of it's an easy motivation for characters. It allows characters to take extreme actions um, that they wouldn't otherwise take. It allows for reoccurring antagonists um, and that can act as a foil to protagonists and you know shape things in new ways that might not be as easy if you didn't have a reoccurring character. So I'm not against it as a concept, and I think that it's an interesting thing to set up and then have a character eventually be faced with whether they continue to tailspin into this battle like the alien did, uh, what's, you know, Space Ahab, I don't remember his name. Space Ahab. Uh, Space Ahab. He continues to pursue it as opposed to the alternative, which is having the writers make the character grow and go past what their, I don't want to say hang up is because that's dismissive. So I'm, I'm, I don't have any problems with it as a writing mechanic. I think it's fun. I think they established it pretty well in this episode and the many examples that have been listed in that they almost universally show vendettas as being a negative character aspect and character trait and tends to have really bad consequences for those characters, especially because this whole thing was a Moby Dick allegory, as was First Contact. And in both cases, they show that those characters' unstoppable pushes against the beast are, are unfounded and self-destructive. I think it's dangerous for writers to go to that well too often, especially in a show where each episode kind of has to stand alone, because you either have to have an ongoing conflict where this person has a never-ending vendetta, or has to be a one-off thing that never showed up. The example I think of is the Omega Particle storyline in Voyager, where Janeway has this secret captain's agenda where she revives the Omega Particle. She has to override the Prime Directive and destroy it at all costs. And she's like solely driven by that motivation throughout the episode, and it's only when her crew finds out and says, this is crazy, <laughs> you need to not behave this way, that she comes around and, and has a little bit of redemption at the end. So I, I don't think I can think of any episodes where the vendetta was, was seen as like a positive attribute for, for a protagonist. Interesting observation is at the end of the episode, they wake up and they still kind of remember their, their desires and their dream state. Space Ahab 
goes off to follow his vendetta to continue his pursuit of the white whale. Meanwhile, everybody on Voyager's like, well, that was weird. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they even knew it was there. They did. Janeway's like... Oh, she mentioned it. Because Seven gives her a report at some point. Yeah, Janeway's like, what's going on? And Seven's like, yeah, this happened, and now I'm going to go to sleep. Or I'm going to go regenerate, is what she says. Yeah. But she also said th- says that the doctor can explain everything. Yes, yeah. that too. So yeah, things things get explained. I'm I'm curious where Crowley's dad is like going. Like the gist that you get at the end is he's chasing this thing, but like he knows exactly where it is. Like you can see it. Right. Uh, and he just has not killed it yet. And he has no higher level objective to like warn people off or to protect the rest of the yeah, galaxy. Like, it's it's a purely but the greedy motivation of yeah, vengeance. Yeah, and, but like the beginning of the episode, he's trapped in it. Like, has he has he been trapped there for forty years, or did he yeah. just recently get there? Like, has he been inside the thing for forty years and it just hasn't killed him yet for some reason? That's... Like, even though it's like continuously attacking his ship, it's like when Seven finally makes contact, it's like fifteen minutes until his ship is destroyed. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck? I'm sorry, this boils down to the writers having no fucking idea why this little weird Yeah, so, what episode they're writing. I'm I'm just saying my it's all an illusion is starting to sound pretty nice right now. No. So. Except it's not. It's totally not. They verify that it's not. No, I know. I don't know. Is this all is this it. all the uh, demon class Mercury crew? Like does this none of this really happen? That actually in the would be line? interesting. That 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 <laughs> would be that would have been an interesting twist. Like periodically between uh, demon class starting and demon class ending, periodically they're just <laughs> episode crew with, with the other crew like that like totally different <laughs> adventures i think that would be amazing but they, they didn't do it no. on the other hand the difference between vendetta and like he's following his bliss uh because it's the name of the episode um, um, it's so, all tied like, he in he gets out of the belly of the beast he continues to follow it at that point he's no longer willfully seeking his own self-destruction he's just doing it because he wants to it could have been more of an emotional gut punch if they had killed the thing and then he has no more purpose in life. Yeah. And that would and, have been more interesting. And yeah. then it kills him. Because exactly. that was all an illusion. Because, because <laughs> wanting it dead was all that he wanted. Right. The things that we're saying are too smart for the writers. <laughs> like, they could never have come up with this. I don't know. This was a. Uh, it was story edited by Brian Fuller. He's a smart guy. Brian Fuller has got his but hand in a couple was, of these. He was churning uh, out episodes every week. So I will say X Files did this story better. There's an episode where they they basically get captured by a, a giant fungus that uh, I remember that, that gives them a vision of them escaping the fungus. And Is they, it like a cordyceps kind of thing? Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Yeah, but yeah, where does the line between vendetta and I don't know what's the opposite of that that I'm talking about? What's the word? Love? No. <laughs> Human connection? Uh, like, <laughs> Relationships? Like that, or like pursuing like your own dreams, where does that cross over? Um, I think it would be like a vendetta, something that you pursue at the cost of like your own happiness, or um, something that you're doing while causing harm to yourself. I'm wondering if the reason Space Ahab is able to pursue this battle for so long without being completely influenced is because his main desire is unattainable. His main desire would be like to get his family back. And though the creature has shown that it can give people false hallucinations of people coming back from the dead, he also explains that over time he's built up an immunity to its effects. And so he can basically ground himself in the fact that the creature can't give him what he truly wants. And so he can pursue it endlessly. Again, not actually stated in the episode, but I, I could see that as, as a reasonable explanation for why he can do this for 40 years in and out of its belly, presumably. 
My problem with this is that he built up an immunity. No one should be able to build up an immunity to something that's going to just knock you down instantly. Like everybody on Voyager who started to get influenced by it. I mean, I, I don't know how long the away mission was, so there was a head start involved. But everybody who was initially affected was knocked unconscious. And unless he was, you know, with his colony ship of however many thousand people, if maybe he went away or something, because that, that bugged me, because I wasn't sure why he was either outside of the influence or physically outside of the, the beast. I can't see how he would get off a ship and how he would get, like, his little shuttle out of there, because his shuttle's being eaten just as much as anything else. Again, it's writing stuff yeah. and, you know. But. I mean, if you want a writing reason, the doctor mentions briefly that, like, they have elevated serotonin levels in relation to the creature's effects. So maybe if someone has, like, serotonin imbalance or the inability to produce it, like, that could make them more or less susceptible to it. Enough that they can go, wait a minute, everyone's fully unconscious, what's going on? And shake themselves out. It's a minor thing, but... That was a hunch that the doctor had. No, he, he read it specifically when he was taking their readings in their unauthorized uh, bioscans. Oh, but it didn't pan out at all when he tried it on when he tried testing it on Bolana. Well, his test was to revive her, which he was able to do, but he wasn't able to overcome the psychic effects. She was already committed enough to the illusion. I imagine part of it is is a, a complicity on on the victim's part. Once they are buy into the illusion, they don't want to give it up. No offense to which Bolana. is what they say in the episode. Yeah. I, I know. Uh, I, don't know I, was, could... I was mimicking what the, what the <laughs> characters would do. Oh, I just want to make sure the mic picked up your eye roll. Yeah, <laughs> a big eye roll and fall over. Yeah, no offense to Bolana, but I, I feel like she would be a bad choice to try and talk into overcoming the desire. <laughs> like, because of her classic, like, Klingon emotional issues? Yeah, I'm just like, if you're... Okay, so, so you're the doctor, you run the test, you can get a crew member to wake up. Which crew member do you think stands the best chance of overcoming it? Tuvok. Yeah, so... And, but, and there's a little bit of setup for that when Seven tries to logically convince him. He had a moment, right? Yeah. Like, when they were talking... Then, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I, I think we're exactly saying exactly the same thing. When they were talking, Seven tries to make her convincing argument, and I feel like there's a moment of recognition in yeah. Tuvok's mind, and then he snaps back to the company line. He's like, this will remain shut off. Like, <laughs> yeah, and you have to get the fuck out. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's brief, and clearly the creature eventually gets a hold of him without much of a fight, but it seemed like there was something there that could have been explored more. Mm -hmm. Can I segue over to how the crew treats Seven in their <laughs> I think you just did. I'm doing it. Yeah. Tuvok, Chakotay, Janeway, pretty much all of the senior officers um, and their interactions with Seven and their altered state pretty much just like take away her personhood. Mm -hmm. I was just like, get out of here. You're not really an officer. You're just a Borg. We need to deprogram you. We need to turn off your implants so you don't ruin this for us. And it's just like, if I was her, I know that she's a better person than I am, but I would not let any of this shit slide. And I would definitely bring it up several times after the fact, just to be like, you guys realize that wasn't cool, right? Yeah. When Chakotay says resistance is futile, I was like, that is the worst possible thing you could have said right now. Yeah. Like, you realize the context of what you're saying. Like, let's say there wasn't any thrall. Like, that's a really bad joke on one level, but also, like, it's kind of offensive to seven sensibilities as well. It's like, oh, you don't have a choice. Ha 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 ha. Yeah, you yeah. deserved to get popped in the nose for that one. Yeah. Yeah. The reason for that line is just to convince the audience that, that he's under the, the influence of the pitcher plant 
I think um, that's the idea. Is it's it a body more, snatchery kind of thing. It gets more heavy-handed in its influence over time, and more obvious because it doesn't matter because it has that level of control. It doesn't have to be as convincing ultimately once they're like incapacitated mentally. The line that Chewbacca says to Seven that indicates that um, he's in the thrall um, of the beast when she brings up like, "Oh, well, shouldn't this wormhole have appeared on our sensors much earlier?" and he says that may have been an oversight on your part. That. F- hit me really hard and I didn't quite figure out why. It hit me harder than like any of the other lines that were said to Seven and the reason why is because Tuvok is actually very gentle and considerate with her throughout the series. When he offers criticism it's in a very delicate instructor sort of way and for him to just be like well you done fucked up. Oh man that got me. I mean granted a lot of Tuvok scenes in this non-Tuvok episode apparently got me. Apparently Tuvok being in any kind of distress really affects you. I'm gonna be such a wreck at some point here. There's gonna be one episode where I'm literally crying as a recording just being like not my baby. That's very much in line with what I said about Chakotay's lines to Seven where pretty much everybody's interactions with Seven goes to convince both her and the audience that they are being manipulated and then she says i think the crew is being manipulated (laughs) yeah i mean i think on some level like the audience we are meant to feel the same kind of betrayal that seven feels but definitely with all of those characters being notoriously very even-handed and smart and capable and fair and all of those things and super considerate of seven you think of like the seven janeway relationship over the course of the show where she's sort of a mother sort of a mentor and like guiding her back into humanity yeah exactly and then to see that when the chips are down that just kind of flies out the window and we're just all gonna forget it by the next episode i am not going to and i don't think seven should either i'd be curious to see if you guys have any thoughts on Harry's absence because we didn't get to see his desire we didn't get to see him interact with Seven I don't know maybe it's like just how it works out where some actors don't get the time each episode but I found that really interesting because I was always intrigued by Harry and Seven's dynamic from the very beginning he really early hits on her and it gets a little weird for a moment well I like how he he sort of does his um, reserved hitting on her and then she comes back much harder than he expects and he backs off immediately doesn't she say take off your clothes remove your clothing Like, that could have been a lot cooler than it was, but <laughs> I mean, say. that could have been really interesting, seeing where that goes. But, I mean, we know that Harry wants to go back to Earth. We know that Harry has a crush on Seven of Nine, because everybody has a crush on Seven of Nine. Let's be real. You're lying to yourself if you don't well, have one. And he's limited the dating pool. Like, he's dated a lot of crew members over the course of the True. But they've the also, um, I think it was like a couple episodes ago where they're like, Tom asks Harry if he still has a crush on Seven. He's like, no. It's like, you're a liar. You're a dirty liar. <laughs> I think they're already trying to set up Seven and Chakotay being a thing. Oh, with this what? episode? No, no, no not, not specifically okay, with this okay. episode. Oh, God. But I mean, leading <laughs> Harry off of Seven so that Chakotay can jump on that shit i don't know for sure that felt very much like a season seven decision like that was an end of the show it felt like like to me like i didn't see anything telegraphed until they literally had her go on a date with him at some point yeah you're probably right because i know when they were shopping tom and balana around with different people then it was just like this week tom's dating this person this week he has a crush on kes this week he has a crush on some other person. Yeah. This week Bolana has a crush on Chakotay, which I think is a better pairing than Chakotay and Seven of Nine. Oh, it makes a lot more sense it from does. the story perspective. Yes. And, and their character dynamic pre-Voyager. They should have banged. Anyways, that's all I got. <laughs> they should have banged. A Jen Marshall fan cast. <laughs> 
going back just a little bit to, I guess, the amount of screen time different characters got, this seemed like a low-pay week for the cast. Pretty much everybody except Seven and the Doctor and Crowley's dad, they had, like, a minimal amount of scenes and it was probably one day of shooting for pretty much everything except for those three. I wouldn't be surprised if they were kind of all on vacation for <laughs> for a good portion of that week. I don't know the rules for sure, but I believe there are Screen Actors Guild rules where if you are a main actor on a show, you have to appear in every episode to some extent. That's why you'll sometimes see episodes where it's like really heavy bottle episode with one character, but you see everyone in a flashback or something like that. Mm. Or the uh, episode of Next Gen we spoke about where the ship's getting clean and Picard goes to get his saddle and they keep cutting back to the rest of the crew for no reason. There's no story reason for them to have that element of the episode, but those actors have to appear in it contractually. Or I imagine they get paid regardless, and so there's an incentive to put them in the episode. Which is unfortunate, because I think this episode didn't need Harry. I like Harry's stories. There's times where it's really interesting to see Harry on screen. Not every crew member has to be in every episode from a storytelling perspective. Unless they had something more to say about his visions, like they should have shown him getting together with Libby or something. Replace the Neelix scenes with Harry scenes, and it would make more sense, because like he would have more reason to go back to the Alpha Quadrant. That's true, except Naomi Wildman loves Neelix, and I don't think she cares about Harry. Um, I was just going to say, I think Harry should be in every episode, but I agree with you that he didn't need to be in this one. <laughs> or, or he should replace someone else who didn't need to be in this one, Neelix. Like, he served Neelix no real doesn't need to be there. in any episode. Not even like Neelix-centric ones? No. <laughs> <laughs> really weird. Like, very avant-garde episodes. It's like Garfield no one walk- Garfield. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it would, the episode would just be two. <laughs> And it would just be it would just be half of Chewbacca. I had transported an incident and I merged with myself. I, it's actually the same. It's weird. It's so weird. So do you like my person? Yeah, weird. you're the same person. Come on. So counter proposal to swapping out Neelix for Harry. What if the post realization that they'd been eaten by a giant beast? What if the reaction was from Harry? Of him <laughs> you just wanted to suffer. Destroyed. How would that work into like the, they're being digested right now? No, no, no. Like so, so <laughs> say they end the episode. They had things cool, but if they crew's waking up, they went and included Harry at that point. I mean, maybe I just want Harry to suffer, and I mean that in, like an affectionate way because I like when characters. Go oh, for shit. like his girlfriend isn't real anymore. That, oh, <laughs> that would have been such a mind. F- for him. So he gets, he gets like savagely severed from the fake yep. fake vision to reality. And yep. It's like, like Libby dies in his vision or something. No, no, no. I love us going with the fake Alpha Quadrant girlfriend. <laughs> and it's very Philip K. Dickian, where like he doesn't even remember what the reality is. <laughs> like he doesn't remember whether it was a fake thing that he made up or whether it was something that the pitcher plant put in his brain. It's like last episode was really inception heavy, but it sounds like we want this episode to end with the top spinning. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know if they ever escaped the pitcher plant. And then the rest of the series, there's little hints that they might still be in the pitcher plant. I'd watch that. We'd all watch that. Yep. Uh, mirror of Erised slash pitcher plant moment. Like, if we were on the Voyager, what would you see? Oh, man. Like, what would be my driving desire as a Voyager crew member? Yeah, like, what would your little note from home say? Stay exactly where you are. The Delta Quadrant's awesome. <laughs> you're, you're in the future in Starfleet. You have phasers and transporters and replicators. You have everything a human could ever want for life. You've already spent your entire life in the Alpha Quadrant. It sucks here. Just stay there. <laughs> you're in a post-scarcity society with holodeck technology. What, do you, what could you want for ever? Like, it's a meritocracy. There's no money in this society. You can do whatever you want for creative output. Keep doing your thing. That's what my note would say. <laughs> <laughs> Who would that be from? But go, but go in the pitcher plant because he's hungry. 
Well, I mean, like, it would be on Voyager because I would, like, living on a spaceship, but I would be able to replicate Zanato sandwiches perfectly. <laughs> Think the replicator can't yeah. do that normally? No. No, it's not actually physically Only Zanatos possible. can make a Zanato sandwich. To be fair, the uh, replicator can't replicate banana pancakes, right? Well, you say or right. Coffee. Doesn't mean like it can't replicate banana flavor <laughs> or it can't replicate someone's mother's recipe or something. Somebody's mother's recipe. Yeah. So they, they can do um, alien foods and things like that, I'm sure. You know. Yeah, like if they can't even do gach, just, yeah. it's just dead. Yeah. They can't do living gach. But like, so you've got this extensive catalog of food, but like when you say hamburger, are you talking McDonald's hamburger? Are you talking in and out Are you talking Five Guys? I'm sure that... Klingons have a similar gach situation. Like, this isn't like my mom made it. This isn't like the takeout on whatever. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> that should be the name of this podcast. <laughs> five gach burgers and... That was <laughs> high five. That was amazing. Right, did you know? Mm, yeah, exactly. Know. So, like, you oh, get, man, like, one... Shake. Yeah, Sorry. like, you delicious. get, like, one version from the replicator. It's like, I don't want another replicator cheeseburger. I want, like, a good one. What do you think of this episode? And more importantly, uh, what would the pitcher plant tell you to convince you to fly into its gut? I really did not like this episode. <laughs> there, there were just so many, so many plot holes that stuck out like sore thumbs. Like I mentioned earlier, there were so many big parts of the plot where it was like, if this doesn't happen, then the entire thing falls apart. I was taken out of it continually by those kinds of things it's like oh seven didn't have access to that janeway uh log entry the whole thing would have fallen apart if ahab weren't hunting the thing it would have fallen apart etc 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 all the way down the line and it, it, i just couldn't enjoy it yeah basically like the pitcher plant would have shown me a universe in which the pitcher plant <laughs> episode didn't exist i like it it would negate itself for your benefit <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i generally liked the episode I mean, I, I turned off a very critical part of my brain, but I kind of do that when I get into situations where any sort of episode that makes me go into a state of doubt, I just give up on and I'm like, fuck it. There's no way for me to enjoy it unless I just go crazy on it and just don't care about inconsistencies and stuff like that. So I embrace it and I enjoyed it as, you know, seven episode, got some weird little moments like her pulling the card and shooting engineering and box wife, which made me happy, but the type of episode that I will not shut off my critical brain on is time travel episodes. And so the pitcher plant thing that would lure me in is an episode of a TV show that involves time travel that's done in a way that does not create a paradox. That wouldn't immediately show you that it was fake because all time travel shows like do paradoxes? Yes. I like it. Just to close this out, I think I'll say that I, I will not try to spend a lot of time defending this episode. <laughs> I chose it because I like 709 as a character, and I like episodes that focus on her. In retrospect, and now having watched this episode again after a long time, it probably didn't even do that very well. She's the protagonist of the episode, and she counters the crew's hallucinations and, and gets to feature. So in that respect, she gets to get some screen time, which I always like. I think Jerry Ryan's a great actor, and she portrays that character really well. But it wasn't a strong Seven episode. So I'll keep liking it because I like Naomi Wildman and I just like the concept of a shipborne crew member and the implications of that. But, you know, maybe like two the thaws, two and a half. I can agree with that. How many blisses does it get? One bliss, straight up, across the board, in, in every category. Hmm. It's fair. <laughs> Should 
should I announce what the next week's episode will be? Yes. Yeah. As a little explanation for the listeners, I have a list of like 15 episodes in front of me, and nobody knows what hell I'm going to leash upon them. <laughs> oh, God. She's picking in, in the moment. We, we do not know what her reveal will be. She doesn't even know yet. It sounds like it. Anticipation. <laughs> All right. So next week's episode is going to be season four, episode 12, Mortal Coil. Yes. All right. So we'll all watch that. We suggest you do the same and then we'll uh, meet next week to discuss it. Until then, this has been Salamander Babies. Thank you so much for listening. You can find the show notes for this episode at salamanderbabies.com slash two and visit salamanderbabies.com to see a list of all the episodes as well as the awesome artwork that Lou's been drawing for them. We can be found on Twitter at Salamander Trek. And Jim just set up our Facebook page. Yeah, the Facebook page is facebook.com slash salamanderbabies. We'll try to keep it simple. It just didn't work for Twitter. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out on Twitter, like us on Facebook, or email hellocomputer at salamanderbabies.com. Until next time, computer and program.